0: listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be a special one. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to break down some different hypothetical issues and some possible scenarios that pop up with Vivarium builds, especially for beginners, but also with, with seasoned keepers alike. And uh, I've got a return guest. I've got the one and only Zach from uh, Equatorial Ecosystems. Of course, you remember Zach from a couple episodes back. We did one on Aeroids and we did one on Margravia, and uh, he's been on the show in the past. And he was kind enough to come on and kind of bounce bounce back and forth some of these different ideas and some solutions to some common problems with me. So we're going to get into all that, and uh, I have a nice long list of different things that I've seen consistently posted on, you know, different places and whatnot. And we're going to get to all that. But before we do, of course, again, thanks everyone for the nice five star reviews and Apple Podcast. Great way to support the show. Nice five star review with some nice comments, goes a long way. And for everything else, check out the link in the uh in the description. I have the link tree, which is the single link that'll take you to everything for the podcast. If you want to support the podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon, there's a link to that. And as far as becoming a patron, it's a great way to support the show, show that you like the content. I've got a few different tiers, one as low as a dollar a month. And I have one that's the most popular tier, it's the five dollar a month tier. And for the five dollar a month tier, you get a shout-out at the beginning of upcoming episode which is pretty cool. And I've also got links to the Amphibicast merch store. If you're looking to get t-shirts or stickers, I have all sorts of cool stuff on there. And uh, also I'm an affiliate of In-Situ Ecosystems now. So if you'd like to get a 10% discount on an In-Situ Ecosystems Vivarium, just by being a listener, follow the link in the link tree, make your purchase, you'll get 10% off and a small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. So other than that, uh, Zach, welcome back. How you been?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Dan.
0: No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for stepping up and uh, giving us giving us your thoughts on a lot of this stuff. Because, like these, these are all questions that I've seen people ask a million times, and some of them I've asked myself. And I I just want to kind of cover all this stuff because a lot of these questions have never really been answered, at least from like a like a plant person's perspective. And I just I want to actually I forgot I just want to frame it to everyone. Uh, a lot of this is going to be plant stuff, so we're really not going to focus too much on frogs. Really, more with Uh, issues that happen when you have problems with plants so um let's i'll tell you what let's get into it let's let's start with our first hypothetical like what went wrong so let's just say that you've set up a new vivarium and uh first thing that happens is you're experiencing die-off i mean some of your plants just aren't doing well they're dying off after a couple of weeks give us some hypotheticals and some possible scenarios that might cause plant die-off or is it just a normal occurrence that we kind of have to just make it through?
1: So so some of that is, is going to be dependent on the, the, the type of plants used. And, and by that, I, I don't mean individual species, but whether they were cuttings or, or previously rooted or had they come from a, a nursery in like a greenhouse setting or grown outdoors versus in a terrarium. And then also how your, your terrarium is set up. Um, so I'll just go from, you know, if you get plants that come from a nursery, there's plenty of nurseries that, that are specialty and specialize in plants that do well in terrariums and they offer great plants that are safe for frogs. And, and, you know, they may not, you know, they use natural fertilizers or they don't, they tend to avoid using pesticides, but there is an acclimation period for a plant that is grown in a greenhouse to something that is put into a sealed up misted uh aquarium or or terrarium, whether you're converting a fish tank or you use one of the more front opening enclosures there's just the the changes in humidity the the constant humidity that may come up in an in an aquarium is all very different than than greenhouse growing and that's one of the things that I've had to learn and and tell people that you know maybe they're a plant person and they're transit or or a I, I, they start as a plant person and, and they've got tons of experience growing in the yard or in a greenhouse and they move to terrarium culture or the other way around. There's a huge learning curve dependent on what, so, you know, what kind of basically glass box you choose to use. Because if you think about a greenhouse, it's really just a giant terrarium. But the way the conditions change is, and, and how you can control them are, are totally different you know your terrarium is in a room that's most likely climate controlled it's under artificial light it's under controlled watering your greenhouse is outside and is exposed to high and low temperature extremes the light is determined by the sun and you might have full sun days you might have cloudy days it might be shaded by tree cover it may have shade cloth you know all of those things are are pr- a lot more variable and less controlled in a greenhouse setting so if your plants are coming from somebody who's growing them in a greenhouse, some of it is just going to be a natural adaptation period. If you're losing plants because you started with, say, cuttings, it may be that it's just some vegetative die-off as the plant establishes that you may need to baby the plants for a little bit. You may need extra moss you know, around the the nodes where roots will come from. You may need to mist a little heavier. You may need to keep the tank sealed up a little more for the first couple of weeks just to make sure that the plants, if they're cuttings, aren't losing water. Because plants are still going to go through respiration and photosynthesis, even though they may not have the the, the, the tissue will, even though they may be rootless and not have the ability to uptake any additional water. So they're still going to lose water through their leaves. So if you've got real big leafy plants, uh, uh, big leaf philodendrons that are used to being in high humidity, and you chop off the tip and it doesn't have any roots and you just drop it into a tank and the tank is goes through humidity fluctuations, say you hand mist or say you only mist a couple times a day and your top is 50 percent screen or something like that you're gonna those plants are gonna lose more water at least until they get roots down and so it's kind of a race between is the plant going to completely dehydrate before it can get roots and can take up new water so that's that's one thing the other thing it could be the other way around and you could have terrarium grown plants that you started and you got them rooted or you 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 bought them or you got them from somebody who grows in a terrarium and, and they mist a couple times a day and the, the tanks are nice and humid and wet and you move them into yours and say you, you, you don't have a misting system or like in this, the, the last example, you don't have you know, a fully covered top. A lot of it is screen. Those plants are going to need the, some time to adapt. So. Some of it could be natural and could be nothing that you have to really be concerned about besides paying a little bit more attention and maybe babying them for a couple days. Some of it may be that you are at risk of losing the plants, and and that's more on the cutting side. Generally, well-established plants are going to bounce back a lot easier than a cutting, and that's why I always recommend if you get cuttings, especially from someone local or something like that, it's always better to put them in you know, a Rubbermaid tote or, or keep them even in a, as long as you're not putting them close to, to a window where they're getting direct sun, even set them in a, in a Ziploc bag with some sphagnum or some moist substrate at the bottom just for a couple weeks and, and let them get some roots down and then move them into your tank because rooted plants establish far better than, than cuttings even though, you know, in today's plant world, cuttings are common and, and, and a lot cheaper. So they're more popular because of that.
0: The ventilation is something that I never would have thought about. Um, so basically what you're saying is you're taking a plant, obviously from one environment that it's, it's, it's acclimated to, cause uh, I mean, obviously many of us will share clippings and stuff like that. We'll have things that will go from vivarium to vivarium. But, um, so if I'm taking a plant from, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, kind of really like low ball here but let's just say i i get something from a big box store um yeah i admit i do it i I do it from time to time Uh, i get something from a big box store say it's kept outside and it's getting fresh air whatnot and i put it in my vivarium should i maybe try to somewhat recreate something closer to the situation that would have had in the big box store meaning allow it to have some more ventilation or some more fresh air until it acclimates before i kind of close everything off
1: yeah. I mean, you always want to, to give it something. I guess that depends. If, if every, tank, every plant that you're putting in your tank is coming, you, know, you run out to a big box store and you're planting your entire terrarium with plants that, that you get in one trip. Yeah, I would start them out, you know, maybe give a lot of ventilation and introduce them to your misting cycle. And then over time, as you see them putting out new growth, as they put out new roots, start to seal off the tank to a level that's that's more comfortable to your room and then they should take off fine you may still lose you know you may get some of those older leaves will rot off but if you if you allow that to happen you know two weeks after initial planting where you've already got new growth that's more used to the current conditions you're at less risk of losing the plant you know you may lose that older growth that was grown outdoors or in a greenhouse, but you'll still, the plant will live and and just continue to grow. One of the things, uh, orchid growers will grow some of their plants, they will acclimate some of their plants to what they call water culture. And they'll take a a big box store, Phalaenopsis, what they call a moth orchid, and they'll unpot it, and they'll put it in a vase. And at the bottom of the vase, they have some volume of water and the water is below the existing roots. And what they do is they let those roots eventually grow down into that water, and then they just keep water in there. And what happens is because you know, if you've ever seen an orchid root, the tip of an actively growing orchid is always is is green because it's not that that silver or that white color that you see is actually tissue that that holds air. It's it's air tissue, and when it's moistened, it it turns green because it fills up with water, similar to what you'd see with like a some of the more arid Tillandsias. They're dusted and kind of gray, and then when you water them, they turn green. It's the same thing. It's a it's a way for them to store water, but in that fresh meristematic tissue, it is set to adapt to whatever the conditions it's exposed to. So if you expose that fresh root to living in pure just water with no substrate and never exposed to air, the tissue will grow in a way that's used to living in that water. Now, if you ever were to take it out of that vase and slap it on a mount and put it out you know, on your patio, you're going to lose that root because it's grown to adapt to being constantly wet. The same way that if you put a plant, if you take a plant that you had growing on your patio and you slapped it in a jar completely full of water, you'll rot all of those roots because they're not used to being constantly wet. But that new growth can adapt and it can adapt quickly. It's the same thing with terrestrial plants or what we have, you know, our, our hemiepiphyte terrarium plants. The old, the old growth is used to whatever conditions it was grown in but the new can adapt. So if you kind of alter your growing conditions, at least initially, and ease something in to what your, what your, what your comfortable typical conditions are, you will get a much better establishment and acclimation than you would if you just grab something, whether it came from somewhere really humid and slapped into something drier or vice versa, your acclimation period will be a lot smoother.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. i I guess maybe I've had it backwards for the longest time because I always kind of left the vivarium conditions the same and introduced plants and I guess expected the plants to catch up rather than doing what you suggest is just kind of maybe altering the vivarium a little bit and letting the two sort of meet in the uh, meet to in the middle, so to speak. That's that's interesting. I never really would have even even thought of that before.
1: Yeah, and that's typically I wouldn't recommend that for an established. You know, if you've got frogs and and you've got plants already in there, that's kind of a different story. But if you're starting a fresh tank, you know, that's where this it, you'll read and you'll see a recommendation that you don't want to put animals in your tank for a month or two weeks or you know whatever that cycling period that they like to say. And and it's the same; it's a similar deal as you know in, in fish tanks and and planted aquariums where you want the nitrogen cycles to level out. Well it's the same thing here. It's just maybe different cycles and different conditions. You want your plants to adapt to your humidity and your misting. You want all of those initial nutrient spikes to, to level out. And, you know, it's all just, you want things when you've got living things in an enclosure, you want all of your the cycles to already be cyclic, you don 't want those initial peaks. you want to minimize exposure of living things to those initial peaks, whether it's a spike in nutrients or a spike in 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 moisture or, or temperature or light it, it It's all kind of the same you, you want to create the least amount of stress for both your plants and your animals, and so moving them in in that cycle is is better than you know, just slapping them in and and telling them, All right, good luck. I need you to conform to, to what I'm giving you.
0: Yeah, those are those are good points. And um yeah, obviously like what you said about the established vivarium, like I'll introduce new plants to some of my established vivariums, but obviously I'm not I'm not gonna dramatically change that to accommodate a little a uh, little little clipping because that would be right. That would be that would be And the solution
1: much. the solution to that is if you get a new clipping and you know, there's a plant that you really wanted, it was just you, know, you saved your money and you've got this showpiece tank and you've got this really rare plant that you want to put in the middle of it, but your tank is already established and you don't want to alter your misting and your humidity for this one plant. Put it in a Rubbermaid tote with sphagnum moss or something, you know, that's sealed up or, or slowly, you know, have a Rubbermaid tote that you've got partially open. This is if it's coming from a greenhouse. Have a tank that's a tub that's partially open and over time, slowly seal it up to where it's used to, you know, 80-90% humidity. And then once it's actively growing in that, it should acclimate to your tank that's got 70 to 80% humidity and active misting a lot easier.
0: Yeah, that brings me to another question. It's it's interesting because you mentioned the, the whole uh, clippings in the sandwich bag cuz I had bought a couple of clippings over the years from different vendors and uh usually got something in a sandwich bag wrapped up with a little sphagnum moss and i i always had difficulty getting these plants to establish just from these really small clippings and i mean some of them were kind of expensive so for the listeners out there who might want to invest in some more expensive plants kind of like you started um discussing with us a minute ago can you elaborate a little bit more on that like like what should you do you're at a, you're at an expo you you get this clipping and you want it to thrive and whatnot in in maybe a little bit more detail. Can you kind of just tell us like what to do once we get the plant home? Like what, how do we set it up and how, how do we prep it?
1: Yeah. So if you've got, so when I, I I've been some of the local shows here and then I've done some of the, the frog days that were closer to me. And, and so when I have, when I bring plants, if they're not well established, I will pack them in some kind of a, a bag in most often in, in sphagnum. And oftentimes I'll take my cuttings a week or two weeks in advance and, and I'll i I'll set them up in these bags. And then I have just a, a baker's rack that has no aquariums on it with lights. And I just kind of set up my, my bags there. The bags, the, the the moisture in the sphagnum creates enough humidity in the bag and just simple lights, you know, a foot overhead, just cheap LEDs will keep the plant going. And oftentimes you'll see them even putting out roots in the back. Ha- so you come to the table and, and you buy the, the clipping and, and you bring it home. If you have a tank that is established, you don't, I, I always recommend that things get rooted in before you start really misting on them. There's a lot of plants that just begonias, That people bring home and they've gotten this belief that they're hard to grow because you take this plant that might be partially rooted or it's just a fresh cutting and you put it in a terrarium and you mist on it every day to keep it wet to promote its growth and it just, it melts. A lot of the issues with those kinds of plants is that they don't do well with water on the leaves when they don't have roots. And I don't really know why, but it's just something I've noticed over the years. And so if you have a tank that maybe it's just a, a plant tank or, or something that's that's closed up and has a lot less ventilation that you do for dart frogs or, or other high humidity frogs, um, and, and you don't mist on it, set it in there and just keep it sealed up in high humidity, water the, the soil, or or just keep it humid enough, or even... Add some water to the bottom and let it just wick water from the, the bottom of the pot, and just let it establish that way. Or, like I said, in, in, you know, when I was talking about acclimating the plants before, set it up in a Rubbermaid tote with some some sphagnum in the bottom, and just close it up and make sure the sphagnum's nice and moist, and then seal it and, and don't mist on it. Or what I tell people at the show, they may be buying, you know, they may come to the show and they may buy an, a a a terrarium and the supplies for the substrate and they're setting up you know, all of the, the supplies and, and plants the next day before they go out and buy animals. I'll tell them, you know, leave it in the bag, put it under some kind of a, a light away from a window where you're going to get direct sun because that bag will cook the plant at that point and just let it sit there for a couple weeks to a month until it starts rooting in and your tank is set up and is established and, and maintains humidity and then move it in. Um so there's nothing wrong with keeping the plants in a bag as long as you make sure that it's not getting, you know, it's not getting too hot. It's not getting light from from a window or something like that, or that it's drying out.
0: Makes sense. I mean I it's interesting that you mentioned putting it in a vivarium and having it misted on. That was that was apparently my mistake. I had purchased a clipping and I put it in a vivarium that mists uh the misting system goes on about 3 times a day just for a few seconds in the morning and then for about 30 seconds in the afternoon. And my my thought process was that okay, well, I'm making sure that it's it's moist, it's not drying out, but just like you said, yeah, those those leaves they just they just kind of melted and the whole thing kind of just turned to mush after about 2 weeks.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, begonias are notorious for that. A lot of jesneriads are, are notorious for that. And then even margravia, I, I think we talked about that a little bit, that I tell people, you know, put it somewhere humid, don't mist on it, wait until you see a new vine, either the, if you've got a tip growth, that, that tip putting out new leaves, or if you've got a, you know, kind of a mid cutting, you see a new lead coming out before you missed it because plants are generally going to push out roots before they push out new vegetative growth but you're not going to see the roots all that often so when you see new vegetative growth that's a sign that okay this thing is acclimated it's got some roots put down now i can move it and it's not going to shock too bad
0: what about nutrients in the substrate and i mean by by and large a lot of rainforest plants don't Come from areas with the most nutritious soil I and mean, from what I understand a lot of the rainforest soil is pretty deficient but i've noticed that in my older established tanks where there's a lot more organic matter that's decaying, those plants obviously do much better. Is there a way to sort of i I hate to use the term fertilize because it's really not maybe not the right term, but i've hear, heard people and I've seen people online ask about adding some kind of a fertilizer or some sort of a nutrient boost. To help the plants acclimate further is there any kind of trick to that or is or like how would you answer that question
1: yeah i mean there's plenty of of non-chemical fertilizer you know, worm castings there's some kelp based fertilizers that are probably not harmful to amphibians or, or inverts or other you know, terrarium residents um you could do that i generally don't uh, the plants tend to once they get growing do fine with, without that. And, and they start getting, you know, the nutrient inputs from leaf, you know, broken down leaf litter and, and you know, frog excrement and, and, you know, dying organic matter from your wood or, or other, you know, plant shedding leaves. But I would say you could do probably that kelp fertilizer or something like worm castings, or even probably if it's, if you have a tank, and it has a, a drainage layer that you're siphoning water out of you could probably if if you're if you're using this plant in that tank or if your plant is already planted in this tank siphon a little bit of water out of out of the bottom and pour it into the onto where the plant is because that water probably has more nutrients than your your mist water would All of this goes out the window if we're talking about cuttings, though, because if a plant doesn't have roots fertilizing, it's not going to do any good because it's not going to be able to have any way to to take it up. So that advice is only for rooted plants.
0: Another substrate question, and Mm -hmm. this is this is one of those common things that I see a lot of new keepers, new new vivarium builders ask is, okay, I have my substrate set up. I have my drainage layer. Uh, My substrate smells like rotten eggs. What's gone wrong in that situation if someone has a substrate that just sort of smells really bad and is really, really soggy?
1: So a couple different things. Either the media you decided to use or some components in your mix are holding too much water, or you're misting too heavily, or you have poor drainage. That rotten egg smell is generally from anaerobic bacteria uh, you know, breaking down some amount of that organic matter. And the way you're getting anaerobic bacteria is you're not getting enough oxygen to that substrate level. And so that could be that you have a non-drilled tank and you're letting the, the water build up, you know, maybe past the false bottom or if you don't or, or if you. Thinking, you know, uh, uh, having the old egg crate method with actually a, a, a some level of water at the bottom that you intend to drain out. Maybe that water gets up too t- too high and it's at the substrate layer, so you're not getting oxygen to both the top and the bottom of it. Or you have some kind of a rock false bottom, whether it's using those the the clay balls or or some kind of a a rock substrate with a barrier and then your substrate on top and the water is up above that inorganic layer and is up into your organic matter, somewhere you're not getting proper drainage and, and you've got some anaerobic bacteria going and that's where that smell is coming from. So your remedy needs to be either be more diligent about draining your, your enclosure or your substrate was, was too dense and you need something more airy that's allowing better airflow.
0: Can that inhibit new plant growth as well, having a substrate that's way too saturated?
1: Oh sure. Uh, you'll rot plants that way. Uh, there's some plants that will do fine in that, but everything will do better with air at the roots. Most of the plants that we grow in, in terrariums are, are somewhat epiphytic, or at best, some, some you know hummus plants that root into leaf litter or what they call hemiepiphytes where they may start as a terrestrial plant rooted into the leaf litter and then they grow up, they find a tree to grow up and, and shoot up. But all of those plants really want a lot of air at the roots and some moisture at that substrate layer, but they're not you know, wetland plants that want to be soggy or, or, or can handle soggy conditions all the time.
0: Yeah, I see a lot of new keepers and new builders one of the common mistakes that people make is the tendency to use cocoa fiber as a substrate <laughs> and i always see pictures of it it's always either way way too wet or way way too dry and it seems like a lot of these people they'll try to root plants right into that cocoa fiber and it just never seems to take off so you think that that extra saturation is definitely a problem then right
1: yeah that and cocoa all of those cocoa products are, are great. But when they're used properly, but one of the downsides to all of that is for whatever reason, whether it's in the process of making them or just due to natural processes, those all have a ton of, of salts in it. And so they really need to be washed um, pretty heavily to, to dilute and leach out those salts before you use it as a primary component for anything whether it be the, the cocoa the chunks with the little cubes of coconut or that ground what they call cocoa peat or core.
0: That's interesting because a lot of times in the past I've bought I've bought I've bought <laughs> excuse me. Bought <laughs> uh, I've bought little seed kits, like little seed starter kits just for fun, or maybe my kids wanted to do it. And it always included a little brick of cocoa fiber. And I always mm-hmm. thought that it must have been the, the perfect media to get seeds to germinate. I mean, is there any difference between that cocoa fiber and the stuff that we use for pet bedding?
1: No, I mean, you can go to some of those big box kind of hardware stores and in the seed starting section, you can buy those bricks of, of cocoa, uh, the coir, just like you would, you know, some of the the, the terrarium the big box terrarium companies sell. I think the the big box hardware ones are $2.99 or something fairly cheap, but they're intended for seed starting, but it's the same material as the as your your terrarium style stuff. I think the big difference there is in a, a seed starting system, you're probably overhead watering. And so you, you water it, it goes through the, the media, it goes out the drain holes, and it's gone. And some of that salt dilutes out every time you water where your terrarium is more of a closed system. And unless, you have a, unless you're drilled and have a, a drain that's you know, pushing out that water as it runs through, you're holding it in the bottom, and you're having to siphon it out, and you may not be removing as much because the vast majority of it is just sitting there.
0: I see. I, I, I'm still taken aback by the salt. I never would have thought that would be in there. That's
1: yeah. I, there's a, I remember reading it. The the cocoa chunks became real popular with orchid growers years ago, and I remember on some of those orchid forums, there was a guy who was a chemist or a chemical engineer or something, and he would take, um, you know, you you'd take some of that dried material and you'd run water through it and you'd soak it, and then he'd pull everything out of the bucket. And then he'd put a TDS meter in there. And I think he used RO water. So you should have started at zero and you ended up with, with a huge amount of total dissolved solids just because, either through manufacturing or just the natural process, that for whatever reason, it retains a lot of salts.
0: Curious how that would affect frogs, considering that so many people use cocoa fibers, frog bedding. I mean, I know a lot of beginners. I, I I haven't used it in a long time, but I know a lot of beginners do. I'm, I'm curious if that has any effect on the uh, on the frogs.
1: Yeah, I don't know. And, and by salts, I don't necessarily mean you know. It's not necessarily table salt. Salts. I, I'm referring to them as essentially just various ions. So so calcium, ionic calcium would be considered a salt. So there's probably some good ones and there's probably some bad ones, but they all contribute to total dissolved solids. And when you're dealing with plants that come from rainforests, you want to minimize those.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about like, like you said, kind of like in terms of like electrolytes and um, usable salts. Obviously no one's putting rock salt in there, but I I always thought it was just, (laughs) I I just always thought it would just be like completely, you know, neutral salt. I don't know. I never would have even thought that there'd be anything like that in there, but makes sense. Right. So here's another, another substrate question. This is one of those things that I see people post or, or ask questions about, and it tends to freak people out, and that's mold. So mm-hmm. a new keeper, new vivarium build, set everything up, and then there, all of a sudden there's this big mold bloom. Uh, any, I mean, I'm not great at identifying mold by species, but let's just say we've got the whole gambit, and there. we've got... Um, mold on on the hardscape we've got mold in the substrate what should someone do when that happens
1: so some of that is is kind of going back to that that fish tank analogy where most likely take a deep breath it's all going to be okay let it cycle out for 2 weeks or so and you'll start to see it go down and the the primary reason probably for that it's the same reason why you see mushrooms pop up outside after a heavy rainstorm. You get a, a big rainfall event, the soil gets saturated, you've got good moisture levels, it imparts some nitrogen into the soil and the fungus that's already in the soil decides, "All right, now is the perfect time for me to reproduce." It shoots up mushrooms and and it completes that part of its life cycle. The same thing happens in a tank. You put in new substrate, which is just organic inputs you put in leaf litter, you put in, you know, maybe some woodwork and maybe some plants. And so that's all inputs of nitrogen and phosphorus and just organic carbon. And then on top of that, you put it at 75 degrees and 80% humidity, which is just, you know, prime conditions for that stuff to grow. And the little spores or the mycelium that was already in your substrate or that was on your wood pops up and is like, oh my gosh, I'm in paradise. It's time to reproduce. And that's why you see that visible mold come up or some, you know, it may be mushrooms. It's all kind of the same process. And then that nutrient, that initial nutrient site uh, spike levels out And you get into more of a cycle and the mushrooms also fall into that cycle or or the, the fungus falls into that cycle where you see that initial bloom kind of die down. And then every so often you might see a little patch of mold or a slime mold on the glass every so often or a mushroom here or there. And that's just part of your nutrient cycling. You know, you add new leaf litter, you add a bunch more nutrients and you get a spike and then it slows down. The other thing in waiting those couple weeks is if you seeded it with microfauna, isopods, springtails and such, your springtails are going to eat that fungus and, and your isopods probably will to some degree too. And so your invert pop- populations have to have a lag in getting up to a level that, that, the, that can keep the mold in check. And so that's just going to be another... Kind of predator-prey cycle where you're going to have a you'll have a a boom of fungus that'll cause the springtails to boom. They'll eat it down to a a level. You'll exceed carrying capacity. You'll lose some springtails or frogs or other animals will eat those down. The population falls below the the level that's keeping the mold in check. The mold spikes and and you just cycle. Um, So if you're just seeing little spots of mold or, or. mushrooms here or there, or a slime mold, it's nothing really to worry about. It's primarily an initial tank cycling thing. And then also, even in an established tank, like I mentioned, if you're refreshing leaf litter each year, you may see a, a pop-up there because you you kind of disrupted your own cycle by dumping a whole lot more nutrients into the system. The one thing, and I don't have a whole lot of experience with this, the one bad thing is lately, there's been that flowerpot fungus that's popped up i guess in some some brands of tree fern and from what i've heard it's best if you see that to probably scrap your substrate and start over because that stuff doesn't tend to go away and can be pretty invasive and supposedly is dangerous to plants and animals too
0: okay that's going to bring me to my next question and i'll give you this has always been one of those things that mystified me i'd heard different things from different people i had a tarantula enclosure with nothing but cocoa fiber in it and um moistened down a corner from time to time and what i'm assuming you're referring to is that that flowerpot fungus it was like yellow um almost like almost like cornmeal type of a texture to it it started in one of the tanks and The substrate dried out and it was still there it kind of persisted for a while then it kind of went away and then from tank to tank to tank it spread it could kind of boom run its course and then disappear is that the fungus that you're talking about
1: i'm not too sure like i said i've never i don't use abg in, in my tanks. So I, I haven't seen it myself. I just saw recently it popped up a lot of the apparently tree fern from New Zealand uh, batches from 2019, 2020, 2021 seem to have the spores inside of it. And so as soon as you put it in a tank, it popped up, but I'm not terribly familiar with it to, to be able to say one way or the other.
0: Okay, I was just curious, and it, it's, it started in cocoa fiber. It didn't start in any ABG mix, any other, like, DIY mix that I had, and it, mm-hmm. only, it only popped up once the substrate had been moistened and then dried out, because hmm. conventional wisdom would have thought, okay, moisture and nutrients, great for fungus, but no, it's, once I, if I got the substrate wetter, it would kind of just disappear. Which was really, yeah, it was really, really strange. Every so often I'll see it pop up now and again. And I've seen people post pictures of it. I've I've heard other plant people talk about it. And the general recommendation was to pull it out and just scrap everything. Like you said, I, I'd heard people say that it could be potentially harmful. I, I didn't want to upset the apple cart. So I just kind of let it run its course and monitor it. Right. And eventually it just kind of disappeared. But... Do you think that people kind of overreact once they see, um, once they start to see like fungal blooms, and then maybe having a hands-off approach might be okay, considering how easily this stuff spreads?
1: Yeah, I mean, in general, I, I think, like I said, if I don't, in terms of the the flower pot fungus, it sounded pretty invasive, and and that may be worth if you can identify it as that, it may be worth considering, you know, taking it out and restart. In general, though, with every, in my experience, every fungus I've ever dealt with, sit back, give it a couple weeks, and, and it's, it's going to dissipate. And, and some of that is just, you know, there are fungal, you know, for lack of a better word, the, the, quote, roots of a fungus are what they call mycelium. And those are in probably every substrate known to man. And they just kind of hang out there and wait until conditions are good. And then they push up, you know, fruiting bodies of some sort. Oftentimes that appears as a mushroom or, or you know, what, what looks like mold. And that's the, the structure that, you know, essentially breeds and then spreads spores. But even once those go away, that mycelium still stays active in that substrate. So you're never actually getting rid of or getting mold. It's always there. It just pops up whenever conditions are ideal for it to reproduce. So for the vast majority of fungi, yeah, a hands off, just kind of keep an eye on it. And, and if it's gone in a couple weeks, it's not really something to worry about.
0: Okay. Next I'm going, I'm just kind of running down my list here. Um, Wood choices. A lot of people complain, especially new new people, because they might not be familiar with the best types of woods to use, but they'll get a piece of wood that'll just kind of mold over and then eventually just sort of rot. What are some good wood choices for a plant of ivarium and what are some choices that people should avoid in terms of, I guess, um, you know, you're going to want a piece of wood that's going to last and last and last.
1: Right. Um, So the main one to avoid is is grapewood. That's a pretty soft wood and it molds over in high humidity pretty quickly and it, it falls apart pretty quickly. I, I'll use that uh, in in screen cages outdoors and it may last a couple seasons, but you know, even in something high as high ventilation as a screen cage and you know, it might get misted every day or it might get rained on, but it also is exposed to, to sun and is gonna dry, I still get mold and it kind of just turns to dirt eventually falls apart pretty quickly in terms of good woods um, most of your hardwoods whether they're native or not uh, work really well I'm lucky and we have tons of live oak so there's times where you know if we have family property or something I'll go in the woods and and collect some nice live oak pieces and then I'll put it out in a on on the driveway in full sun and just let it cook for for months out there in full sun on concrete just to make sure there's there's nothing in it that that you know could pose harm that's something that's good if you have access to freshwater driftwood as long as the the piece is is pretty heavy those tend to work well cork always works you used to be able to get these really small diameter cork tubes that were almost like little branches i haven't been able to find them in a long time but but those were great i had friends that their entire you know they didn't have access to, to local wood so their entire builds were nothing but those real almost like cork sticks and they made some of the most beautiful tanks they grow plants really well because the fissures in the wood the roots want to get into those fissures. Um, it grows moss really well, so that's a good one. Manzanita is another good one that, that's real hard and sturdy. It's primarily, you know, it grows out west, so most of your suppliers are out west. It's not cheap, and it's not cheap to ship, but that's a really good wood. Um, those are primarily, uh, Cypress is, is also another one that's, that's typically pretty good. Woods that you would avoid, not necessarily for their ability to hold up, but for potential danger, I wouldn't put pine in an enclosure or cedar things that have, you know, if you pick it up and you've got a cut edge and it's got a real resiny smell or, or a a real strong smell, I'd avoid those because some of those oils can actually aerosol and, and pose a hazard to, to amphibians. Um, But yeah, I would say most of your your non-toxic hardwoods are decent. And then, you know, if you were buying most of the the freshwater driftwoods, manzanita and cork are probably the most common and also some of the best.
0: And if you're planning on using Mopani, make sure you have someone with a strong back to help you (laughs) because that stuff is insanely heavy. (laughs) Have you ever used Mopani? I haven't. Oh, I have it in like, I have it in two vivariums that I, I originally used it for an aquarium. And of course the tannins just, it, it took months and months and months for those tannins to go away. And I right. ended up scrapping the aquarium and I had this massive chunk of it. And I moved it into one of my, one of my vivariums to cover up a little spot that was an old water feature because of the nice texture. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Like the, a piece of wood that's maybe the size of a brick weighs as much as like Ten bricks. That's how it's like. If, oh, if if lead was wood, that's what mopani is like. But it's <laughs> it's a it's a great wood. It, it, it's like practically. Don't try to cut it though, because you'll never end up doing it. It's that's it's so dense.
1: Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of those dense woods are the ones that that hold up well to you know if it's going to hold up well in a, in an aquarium that's submerged, it'll also do most likely pretty well in a in a terrarium that's that's getting a lot of water input.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And they, they actually do look good incorporated into water features. I mean, I'm not a big water feature person, but they just seem to Mm -hmm. hold up so well. And they've got two sides. They've got a smooth side and then the other side's kind of like a real gnarled textured size. So it's like, there was a couple of spots where I kind of wanted to cheat in the hardscape rather than committing to doing the whole big polyurethane foam thing. I just took this piece of Mopani wood and just kind of wedged it in the corner and it, gave me the same look but it was it it added so much weight to the tank that it's like i mean they make coffee tables out of this stuff that's how (laughs) i I don't know how how anyone cuts it down though i think i think it comes from i think it comes from central africa i don't know how people are cutting these things down whether they're using like laser beams or something like that because it's like (laughs) trying to cut it is a nightmare
1: yeah probably some commercial blade
0: yeah yeah well we're talking about substrate and we talked about plants from big box stores and whatnot and this is one of those things that i hear people kind of have an issue with especially with substrate that comes along with big box store plants is fungus gnats so if you've got little bugs flying around where did you go wrong and what can you do to correct that if you've got fungus gnats
1: so fungus gnats much like their name they they feed on either the gnats or the the larvae feed on fungus that's that's in your substrate and so if your substrate was fine before and you brought in a new batch of plants and then you had this explosion odds are it came on your substrate and so for me I never introduce big box store or what have you substrate into my aquariums there's just you know, they may put fertilizer. I don't like to have perlite. Uh, most of those peat-based or core-based soil mixes are cut with perlite to add drainage. I don't like having that in a, in a frog tank just because it's almost like little mini pieces of, of pumice or, or lava rock that the edges are kind of sharp. For you know, They might be small to us, but for a thumbnail or something, they're the same size. And I just it seems kind of risky. So what I'll do if I if I get it from a nursery or from a big box store, I unpot it when I take it home, and I just lightly you know put I've got the little hose attachment that that you rotate it and it changes the spray and I'll either do shower or or kind of the flat sprayer and just lightly hose off all the substrate down to bare root, and if I'm going. You know, if it's a new tank I'm setting up, that's going to be not have animals for a little while, and I'm going right into the tank, and the plant is kind of, kind of quarantine in in the enclosure before animals go in. I'll plant it, you know, into the substrate if I'm if I'm getting it and I I want it to sit for a little bit because maybe the place that I got it from sprays pesticides, and you know, you want to wait out that period to make sure there's no residual or something like that. It'll go into a, a grow bin in sphagnum moss or you could use abg or whatever your mix might be but anything i'd get from a nursery or a box store comes home gets bare-rooted and then i'll plant it in a substrate that that i use and then let it grow
0: yeah that's one of those mistakes that i think people make fairly often is just not prepping the plant and getting it kind of quarantined what about like do you ever do like bleach dips or anything like that? Or if someone wanted to really make sure that the plant was clean and didn't have anything coming in on it, like especially if you brought it in from someone else's collection, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in general, a 10% bleach dip kills most of the, the stuff you wouldn't want transferring tank to tank, but it's also not so strong that it's going to kill something that's, um, kind of finicky in terms of, of what it's exposed to i've seen people even dip some of the mini orchids and that kind of stuff and that tends to to do okay you 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 put it in a bleach dip and i think some people will even soak it in there for 10-15 minutes and then soak it in pure water afterwards just to any shock or any dehydration you cause the plant by exposing it to the bleach soak it in water to make sure all of that bleach, you know, leaches off the plant and and the plant can have some some clean water to uptake after um but but generally a 10% bleach dip is is what you should be looking at or you know also pay attention to in terms of you know invertebrates that you can see not necessarily pathogens or, or fungi but in terms of not wanting, you know, whether it's snails and slugs or, or different bugs, you know, put it in a bin and grow it out for two months. And, you know, the, the the, if you've got fungus gnats, the fungus gnats are going to explode in there, or if you start seeing some, some slugs and snails, you know, you can isolate it to a single bin and you can smoosh them as you see them or, or whatever and kind of break that reproduction cycle and then move it into a, a terrarium.
0: What about clippings that you move from one of your own terrariums to another one? Like, uh, I I have a, a, not really a rack, but I have four exoterras kind of lined up in a row. And I've taken clippings from one and moved it into the other. And those clippings haven't done particularly well. And there was a lot of die off with those. And the conditions were essentially identical. Same misting schedule, uh, same lighting, same everything. What would cause those plants to fail when they take a clipping from an established vivarium and put it into one that's almost the same right next door to it? Yeah,
1: some of that may just be, you know, that it was a, a cutting and it, it went from a an established plant in a misted tank to a, a cutting getting mist on it and kind of going back to that unrooted plants don't necessarily like mist on the leaves kind of thing honestly that, that it, that's kind of unusual to me um generally when you're just taking a cutting and moving it you know five feet left or right i don't see a, a whole lot of die off from that but it, you you will sometimes see it just from you know the the mist on the leaves is causing those leaves to rot and the plant's not rooted to to be able to push out new growth before the whole thing rots away. Um, so, so generally, I'd, I'd say it's probably something to do with that. Um, kind of going back, touching on taking this scenario and going back to the the treatment of plants. If it's a uh, cutting in, in my collection already and it's going from one tank to the tank next to it, unless I know that the original tank has snails or, or has some kind of bug in it that I don't want going to the next one, I generally won't treat, you know things that are in a tank and they're going to another one of my tanks from a pathogen standpoint, odds are, if any of your tanks have anything, all of your tanks have it because no, I've never come across an enclosure that's fruit fly proof. And if you've got some you know, bacteria or something in one enclosure and you feed a fruit fly in there and it gets out, it moseys into the next one, you've got pathogen transfer there. So, um, generally i'll treat plants if it's coming into my collection but once it's there i they kind of pass freely
0: what about bromeliads and i see a lot of people put pictures up of the first vivarium and they've got the bromeliad anchored right on the bottom into the substrate can mm-hmm. can that work
1: If the species of bromeliad is right, and if the substrate doesn't stay too wet, sure. I mean, there's people. I mean, here in Louisiana or, or in Florida, there's people that grow neos. You know, they'll plant them in their flower beds, and as long as the the soil isn't too dense, it could work. Um, it it it's a different ball game in a tank where generally we're overspraying and we're overly humid. You, you do run the risk of rotting them, but you, you could make it work. It, it's not ideal. And the other downside to that is your your bromeliads are further from the light than they really want to be. Are We've got really good LED lights these days, but you still want those to be pretty close to the lights, or at least in the upper half to third of the tank to keep their form and, and to stay the color that, that, you know, their, their max potential and putting them at the bottom of an enclosure is just keeping them further from the light. So you may get a much looser growth habit where your leaves are a lot longer and kind of spindly looking and, and it'll green out more than it would if you had planted it in the, the upper, you know, half or third.
0: I think that's one of the other questions that people often have is how to get the bromeliad to really color up. Like I like certain like certain Neos like like Fireball, I mean that pretty much colors up regardless. But like some of the other varieties, do you have a recommendation in terms of lighting? Like maybe someone doesn't have the, the correct lighting to get the full color out of it. Like what would you recommend in terms of, of effective lighting and, and placement within the vivarium to get the max color out of it?
1: Yeah, I I mean most often the the color is a result of of some stressor or it's a seasonal color due to it blooming and so you in as a as a rule of thumb with bromeliads the more light you give it the more color you're going to get until you push it so far with so much light that it burns i don't know that unless you're putting you know metal halide or or high pressure sodium bulbs over on a a terrarium. I don't know that there's an LED light that's really going to burn bromeliads that are well acclimated to light. Uh, Again, that's a thing that you don't want to take an all green, you know, say Neo Fireball, you don't want to take an all green Neo Fireball and put it under a bank of five T5 lights or five, you know, really bright LED lights. They will burn if they're not used to those conditions they, you know, the day before and you just toss them under that. Um, but in general, upping the light will, will increase your color and, or, or raising the plant in the tank. I don't really know that, I, I'm sure if you increase the, the usable light, the, the, the cry levels, it, it would take a, a you know, a a less intense light to do it. But I've been able to turn a lot of bromeliads red or increase their color with pretty cheap, you know, 6,500 Kelvin LEDs that I don't use any kind of, you know, specialty planted tank lights or, or anything like that over my enclosures. And I've been able to get decent color out of my bromeliads just by placement and, and you know, the light that I do put under there and knowing, you know, that, that some of them aren't going to color up unless they're in bloom. It's just a a hormonal thing within the plant that they, they kind of fire up as they're about to bloom. And that may be because that's how they attract pollinators or, or something like that. You know, they they brighten up to bring in the the hummingbirds or the butterflies or whatever that actually pollinate them. Um, But in general, a sixty five hundred Kelvin color temperature gives you good plant growth, and and they'll call those daylight bulbs or or sunlight bulbs because that's the that's what people say is the color temperature of sunlight.
0: I love my Fluval freshened plants. That's that's when I fell in love with sixty five hundred K because they gave me just the best color. I, it's funny because I have those like. Not so expensive. They're like an. I think it's Nick Crew. You get them on Amazon. Uh-huh. I've got those, and but the Fluval lights, bar none, just blow everything else away in terms of just color and and growth.
1: Yeah, I used those, and maybe it was a light, maybe it was the precursor to that one. I think mine was called Planted Plus. I think that was by Fluval too. My big issue with them is the ballast blew out. I I I love the light it put out, but. I was getting ballast blowing out at nine months and for $120 life, that was kind of a, a sad day.
0: Yeah. I replaced one of mine about, I want to say six months ago after having it for about three years. Uh-huh. I, um, I got it wet by, by ah. accident. I, uh, I was, I have a little strip of uh, like plexiglass or it's actually acrylic, but I use that to kind of, kind of fine-tune the the ventilation over one of the aquariums that excuse me one of the um well it's an aquarium that i use as a vivarium and um mm-hmm. i have to kind of move it around back and forth if it gets like really drafty down there or if i have the ac going i don't want it to pull all the moisture out so i was lifting that up and as i moved to place it on the glass i accidentally got a drop on the light and then that was it for the light so mm. yeah and and it went up a lot in price since when i originally bought it <laughs> So yeah, yeah, I
1: had some of the early ones. So, I mean, it could have just been that mine were, were buggy and, and they've worked that out. I, I did. The light was great on it. I just, I had a couple that, that went bad kind of quick. So that's when I didn't, that's when I kind of stopped spending money on high dollar lights.
0: Yeah. I was just, I was just really happy with these, the, I mean, I'm sure there's other LED lights out there that are available. The, the Nick Cruz, they they do the job on some of the, really like my non-show tanks, like the tanks that I just kind of right. have. I mean, look, the, some of these tanks, I'll be honest with you, they're not that elaborate. I have some frogs, I have some pothos and some cork bark, and that's, they're not, they're not show tanks. So those I don't put that extra money in, but the ones that I really want to look uh, presentable, I've been really happy with those lights. Right, yeah, yeah. So a, f- a little while ago, And this wasn't even on my list. I wasn't sure if it would come up, but I'm kind of glad it did. You mentioned snails. I'd had snails in one of my tanks, lasted about a year. I was concerned about it. I I kept asking myself, do I do the the, uh, CO2 bomb? Meaning like, do I get a bunch of dry ice and put it in there and close off all the ventilation and hope that that kills them? I've heard different things about that. I've heard, let them go. I just let them go and after about maybe a year they were completely gone. What would you recommend to someone who has snails in the tank all of a sudden?
1: So from what I know, the CO2 bomb for snails doesn't work very well because apparently they can get up into their shell and then there's actually a almost, you know, they're whether it's the, the foot of the animal or whether there's actually a, a flap in the shell, they can actually use it like a valve and seal that shell closed. And they can just sit in that shell for hours without needing to, to basically come out for oxygen. So if they are able to sense that the oxygen is getting low, they'll just close up into that, let the CO2 dissipate, and then you still have some survivors. My best snail reduction methods are, are kind of simple and and that's just, I'll put a piece of iceberg lettuce in an aquarium on, you know, some kind of a, a dish or something and I'll do it before lights out one day. The next day before the lights come on, I'll go in there and I'll just take the whole thing out. And if you do that, you know, every other day for a week or so, you you can at least get them down. You may have to do it, you know, every other day for a week and then take a couple weeks off and then do it again to, to catch the ones that, that hatch because there's you know constant eggs and you need to break that cycle. But that's been my best method to um, reduce their populations down to something that's manageable to where they're not wrecking plants. Some people use beer traps, but unless you're able to isolate that trap from any frogs you have in there, that, that might be kind of tough.
0: Yeah. The frogs are either going to really like that or they're going to really hate it. <laughs> right. It is an effective trap though. I, when I was younger, we had a little strawberry garden in the backyard and we used to leave little pie tins of beer out. And I'll tell you, man, next morning there'll be like 30 or 40 slugs in this thing. They just, they oh, love yeah. that beer.
1: Yeah, it, I, there's something about it. I guess we're not all that different from <laughs>
0: mollusks. <laughs> yeah. It's it's also almost like um, apple cider vinegar and fruit flies. Right. They they're just drawn to that stuff. I'm I'm curious what it is. If it has something to do with the maybe the fermentation process, I I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I would bet because they just flock to that.
0: Yeah, that's another another question for the ages. <laughs> why does why does beer and uh, vinegar attract flies and Slugs. <laughs> so we're we're kind of winding down, but I'm curious, what are some common complaints that we didn't cover so far? Like, what are some common complaints or issues or problems that people come to you with? Like, is there anything that we haven't covered that people come to you and ask, hey, Zach, listen, I'm, I'm having a problem with this plant, or I just got my vivarium just started and I'm not really quite sure about how to fix this problem. Like, what are some things that you've encountered?
1: Uh, I don't know about specific issues, but some just general, I guess some things I've learned or some things that I've helped other people with, we, we seal up our tanks or, or the, the old hobby dogma that, that's out there and the humidity recommendations, we end up with tanks that are sealed far too tight than, than really is necessary. And, and this is kind of a, a problem and a solution to a lot of manifestations of issues. If you have black spots on your leaves, or if your plants are, are dropping leaves, they look like they're kind of turning to mush. Um, one of the first things that I would recommend looking at is, is how much ventilation you have on your, your enclosures, you know, the Europeans and, and we've kind of, some of the, the custom enclosures have taken on this style and, and even kinda sorta, in a way, in the, the big box terrariums that, that you can get, have the, the passive ventilation below the doors, and then they're designed for, as heat rises, you essentially suck outside air through that vent, and it rises and it exits through the, the screen on top. A lot of dark frog keepers, though, end up closing up that whole screen on top or glassing it in. And just that lack of air circulation, it benefits the frogs, but it also benefits the plants. You know, plants also need gas exchange. They may produce oxygen in photosynthesis during the day, but when the lights go out, they respire just like we do. The only difference is they're producing their own carbs where we have to eat it. So they're producing carbon dioxide at night and, you know, they may not produce oxygen at the same rate that they produce carbon dioxide. So getting fresh air into a terrarium is, is beneficial to all the organisms inside. So, so that's a major thing uh, just in general, either over or under misting or because of the, the, the lights that we have now, are, are have gotten so strong with these LEDs. People think we need, you know, this top of the line LED and, you know, they'll go out and spend money and they just want to blast enclosures with light. Outside of bromeliads, most of our plants that we grow are, are, are low light plants. I mean, if you think about, you know, if your mom or your, your, your grandma had grew African violets on a, on a grow rack uh, years ago, you know, we're talking about, you know, most just nereads, or an African violet is a just neread, so piercias and um you know apicias those kinds of plants grow basically like an African violet does, and you know my grandparents had this silly little purple grow light that sat over the top of those and and so really watch how much light you're putting in a tank and and the and the light levels and how much reaches the bottom because that, that canopy effect can really increase the number of plants you can grow. And also, if you're keeping dart frogs, can really make dart frogs feel more secure. You, you want shadows on the ground. You don't want your tank to be lit up like a lamp. Um, so, so, those are, are two major things. And, and maybe just something else that's, again, not necessarily a, a, an issue that I've seen, but a, a solution to a lot of people's issues is we, we see all of these substrate mixes and these recommendations for substrates really simplify your substrate when you can i went away from abg and all these other mixes because if you think about a rainforest soil it's primarily clay that's topped with whatever leaves falls but those leaves break down pretty quickly because the conditions are great. You know, the moisture levels are high. The temperature is always conducive for, for microbe and, and invertebrate growth. And so you're cycling your leaf litter pretty quickly. So you get this nutrient input and then you process it, you cycle it out and then it's gone and then you input more. But your soil layer is, is, is pretty inorganic in nature. I have switched everything to calcine clay, which is just an inert fired clay material and you don't end up with as long as you're able as you if you drain it or if you have a a drilled tank you don't end up with the soggy substrate you it's you never have to replace it because it's inert Uh, it is a little heavy uh, but you don't need as thick of a layer because it can accomplish both your drainage layer and your substrate layer as long as you set up However, you're going to drain your tank correctly or, or, you know, that can be your false bottom. And then you can add a layer on top that is your substrate layer to where your water never gets above your false bottom. And then the top is able to constantly drain. Um, So, yeah, I think those are those are some things that, you you know, look at what people have done for you know the 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 old timers knew what they were doing. We have a lot of fancy things at our hands now that that make keeping these animals easier, but sometimes taking those and, and simplifying our systems is is better It's kind of like that that adage that you know if you're just getting started, you don't want a water feature and you don't want to have this big, complicated build getting started well, sometimes going even simpler than that can give you the the best results of it all
0: what do you think about i mean since we were you just kind of discussed it a little bit but the the whole model of the the drainage layer the substrate barrier and then the substrate i mean do you think you think that that mode is is still should be the standard or i mean i know you're doing it so differently like what what do you what are your thoughts on that i mean you think that people should be maybe generally simplifying it more instead of just kind of going with that mode
1: I think, you know, that works. There's tons of things that work, but it all, it's, it's a balance of how much you want to maintenance things. And, and in that mode, yeah, the substrate barrier keeps the, the soil from getting down into your drainage layer. But, you know, water does a really good job of sticking to itself, which means it's really good at wicking through substrates and so your substrate barrier isn't going to keep water from wicking up into your your soil layer and if you don't drain you know if you don't maintain your water level below the top of your drainage layer if water is routinely getting to or above the top of your drainage layer it means the bottom portion of your substrate it stays saturated and and that's where you end up with you know, the, the anaerobic areas and the smell, and, and just, you know, generally soggy soil. Because then, if your bottom layer, you know, is, is basically sitting at the water level, then water's gonna wick all the way to the top. And if it stays like that, then your soil is gonna stay pretty well saturated. So, you know, it works, but it really requires you to drain your, your enclosure more often. Um, to me, I have gone to everything I ke- have, all of my enclosures are drilled, and I, and I know people there's some people who, you know are, are afraid to drill glass or it's intimidating, and that's understandable, and, and not everybody can, can do it or has those resources. But there's now, you know enclosures that are coming out that, that are pre-drilled, and I think that's a, a huge step in the right direction, because it, it just reduces another maintenance that you know that's kind of a critical maintenance step because saturated soil isn't good for anything
0: yeah you you, you kind of read my mind in terms of where i was going cuz I, I was just thinking about it one day i'm looking at my my drainage layers and i've done different things i've done leca i've done uh foam like a like a sponge foam type mm-hmm. of uh drainage layer i've done egg, i've done everything and i was looking at the The Leica and the, I mean, I just use vinyl window screen. It's the same as the stuff that you get at the store for like triple the price. And then I had my substrate on top, but I'm looking and I'm like, you know, it doesn't seem, something about it doesn't seem right. And then that was where I had problems was the misting system was, was going too much and the Leica was getting saturated and it was almost like, like you said, it was getting wicked up through the substrate barrier into the lower levels of the substrate and i kept thinking to myself are other people having this problem are other people building vivariums and they understand the concept of having the drainage layer the importance of it but that drainage layer is just holding way 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 too much water and it's almost like it's defeating the purpose because it's fouling the substrate anyway no no, that was just it was it was just something that was on my mind and i'm kind of mulling it over in my head that's why i wanted to see what your thought your thoughts on it were
1: yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly. I mean, if you look at that that leca that clay, you know, even if you don't wet leca, if you take a, a fill up a five gallon bucket with leca and there was you know, a fifth of the bucket had water in it, if you let that sit for long enough, the bottom balls are going to soak up as much as they can, and then they're going to wick it up, and and that's going to wick up as far as that volume of water can go. I mean, so in a, in a terrarium, even if you've got leka and it's only half of the bottom, you know, the, the layer, the drainage layer, the upper balls are still going to have wicked water from just being in contact with lower ones that are partially submerged and up and up. And then if you've got enough water in there, the top layer of, of those leka balls are going to wick water up into the substrate. So yeah, you may not have, you know, wet substrate from a perspective of it's sitting in water, but you're still have a constant water source now from the top, from your misting and drainage and from the bottom. So yeah, it's, if, if I were to go back to a drainage layer, even though the, the egg crate method is kind of a pain, that or the, the foam I, I would imagine I've never used the foam, but there's not a lot of surface area for water to wick through the foam, and, and I think it's you know primarily a polyethylene or some kind of almost rubberized material. So water's not going to really wick up that as much. That allows you to get your substrate up and out of the water and not really transfer water from your drainage layer up into your substrate.:
0: Yeah, I was reconsidering the egg crate method and it's almost like we in the hobby we had this idea of what works and at the time what worked i guess the best was was egg crate or i mean anything else even like big chunks of like lava rock or whatever but we wanted something that was a little bit more aesthetically pleasing and less effort to hide and it seems like the Lika and similar materials filled that void but they just they don't seem to be as effective as a drainage layer as some of the other stuff like the egg crate which you can really really separate from water that's run off from below so right yeah and and
1: if your tank was drained you know if it had a, a drain in the bottom and you used leka to get up you know to get the substrate up and over the drain that's a different story because you're getting rid of that that dump water or you're getting rid of the majority of it to where you know your leka isn't sitting in water constantly or the majority of the volume of leka isn't sitting in water
0: i was able to i was able to fix it because i i I did that i i I thought to myself you know what i have egg crate and all the other tanks i want to go with something that's a little bit simpler looks a little bit nicer went with the leka had the missing system going and substrate went anaerobic i was using a turkey baster to get down to the leka siphon it all out And I'm like, there has to be a better way. And it took me longer to figure that out as a, I guess, as an intermediate builder. Then it took me to figure out how to work with the egg crate as a beginner. You know what I mean? So it's almost like, like you said before, it looks nicer, but it's, it's still more work unless, unless obviously, unless it's drained, you know, unless you have a drainage hole. So I guess for new people out there, don't, uh don't think that leak is the only option. You could always go with the egg crate method. It might be a little bit more work for you to hide, but it'll definitely be less work when it comes to maintenance. Right. Well, I'm trying to think of anything else. I know there's, a, there's probably a whole host of other qu- other questions there that I'm going to remember after we finish up. But, um, <laughs> I mean, are there, any, are there any other mistakes you think that people make? And maybe, I don't know, any, like, well, let me ask you a question. Let's just be honest what's some of the worst vivarium setups you've seen from the perspective of someone who works with plants? Like what are some of the worst vivariums people have built that will just never support plants? Hmm.
1: I I think, well, one thing is, is using, you know, we talked about the, the cocoa core using peat moss is, is one thing that, you know, people probably think are, it isn't that big of a deal. Lots of our bedding plant substrates are are made with peat. Um, But if you used a a substrate layer that was primarily peat based, that's one of the, the biggest mistakes. And the reason is peat is extremely, hydrophilic so it, it it holds a lot of water when it's wet but it's also extremely hydrophobic once it dries and is really hard to re-wet um it, it also can get anaerobic pretty quickly so that's one pretty big mistake i see people use you know you can buy a, a giant chunk of of peat in a bag from you know a big box hardware store for relatively cheap Uh, But that's probably one of the bigger, you know, mistakes to make. Um, In terms of, you know, other things, like I I mentioned before, uh, you know, a a sealed tank that you're misting four and five times a day for thirty seconds each time, like like a lot of people do or or a lot of people recommend or, or have recommended in the past. It doesn't matter how you set up your drainage layer and your substrate for that. It just just that alone is is a recipe for, you know, rot and and real issues with plants that aren't super easy. You know, that would probably grow pothos and and you know your your basic, you know, philodendrons, but Anything that's kind of tough and, and is picky, you're going to rot really quick in a tank that's sealed up and and misted constantly uh, every day. Um, something else that, that probably a lot of people know, but but it's something worth paying attention to, especially for beginners, is your light placement. Um, if you put If you seal up a tank and you put a light right on top, especially you know some of those dome lights. You can, you can turn your tank into an oven pretty quick, even with an LED. You know, the, everybody says that LEDs are more efficient and they're the, you know, they, they put off less heat. And that's true to a point, but really they don't put off less heat. They put off less heat directed downward. You know, a, a round bulb is going to dissipate heat in all directions. LEDs dissipate heat through the, the top, which is a heat sink. But if you put, you know, a LED light in one of those dome reflector things you can get from a pet store and it's sitting on top of a glass pane that seals up a tank and you've taped off the, the lower, you know, front, front um, vents to, to make it as humid as you can that that tank is going to increase in temperature pretty significantly from the room and you may think oh it's in a 75 degree room you know it's it's going to sit at room temperature and and you can cook plants and and you know frogs or whatever else you're trying to keep in there pretty quick Um, most enclosures will that 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 have thought put into them should grow plants with some tweaks here and there for, you know, you have to figure out misting, you have to figure out your humidity, but a lot of that is just tweaking and figuring out in your space. You know, my room, the the room itself is 70% humidity. So I don't need, I could probably go full screen tops and mist twice a day and even have dark frogs do fine just because my ambient is fine. That's not going to work. That setup isn't going to work for somebody in Arizona. They're going to need to close up their enclosure more. They're going to have to miss the little heavier. So I, I, that's, you know, you really have to pay attention, read your plants, read your animals, and read your space and adapt accordingly. The Just reading online a care sheet or a forum post on how to do something or, you know, sticking to heavy dogmatic recipes that's not you know that's a mistake in and of itself if you're ignoring what you're seeing because somebody says oh well i misted my you know renitama imitator three times a day and they bred for me year round well that works in you know california but does the same thing work in florida
0: one last question for you and this is something that i've always has been on my mind i, I I, I have my thoughts on this but i want to hear yours mm-hmm. go to a reptile expo and there'll always be a couple of tables where someone will have a vivarium that's already planted set up ready to go anywhere from maybe 200 300 if not more it's planted and whatnot and i see them and i think to myself you know what this was probably just made up like right now on the spot and I can only imagine what this thing is going to look like in three to four weeks. It's got, like, the ball of, like, frog moss and maybe a bromeliad and maybe, like, one of those little tiny, like, little tiny Fittonias. Because, like, Fittonia yeah. gets huge and it grows up, but when they're little, they look, they look, you know, cute. What are your thoughts on those types of setups? Like, if someone ends up starting off with a prefab vivarium that's already planted, what can that person expect in the long term, for that type of setup is, is it a reliable choice?
1: Um, I, I think it depends on who it comes from. If it's a table that's selling dart frogs that they produced, then possibly if it's the, you know, supply vendor that gets wholesale tanks and has somebody you know, throwing together aquariums with, you know, Six pack vetting plants that they they bought at the big box store down the street the night before. It, no, I mean photonias don't do well. It's like you said, they get lanky and they really need a lot of light. But that is one of the most common, you know, off the shelf reptile show terrariums plants that that you see. Um, odds are the the bromeliad is is shoved into the bottom of the tank, and you know a lot of the things that we just talked about. And the the substrate mix, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of substrates that are, you know, you, you, you buy a bag and and you slap your logo on it and you call it, you know, frog dirt or whatever the the trade name is that the, the, whatever company that's selling it calls it. And it's, it's little more than peat moss or cocoa peat and some, you know, bark or, or, you know, whatever in there. And that's not going to do well long term. You know, it may have a drainage layer; it may not. And for the cost of them, you're you you can buy your own enclosure and build your own tank and still save some money. So, I think it totally depends on on, you know you have to be aware of your vendor and and know you know if this is coming from somebody who's selling you know they have a, a next to their tanks they have an array of of dart frogs that that they produced and they can tell you, you know, parameters and, and how they bred them, then yeah, that might be a tank that's set up well, but if it's just a, just a general, you know, herb supply vendor or, or, you know, other animal vendor, then, then odds are the the success of the plants in that tank long-term are going to be low. You'll probably be redoing it in six months.
0: Yeah, that was what I figured. I just, I, ha- I hate to see people who might not necessarily be that familiar with plants or that comfortable. I mean, look, there's always a learning curve. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm no whiz with plants by any means, but I feel like people might be intimidated by having a planted vivarium and having to kind of start and learn along the way as they go. I just, I hate to see people get something that's kind of prepackaged and they fail, not, not because of their own inex- inexperience, because we're all going to fail, but, um, I guess you just want to be careful that you give people the tools that they're going to get to succeed rather than just giving them this assurance that they're going to have something that they're just going to kind of be like a plug and play and they're not going to have to do anything, and then it fails. I just I hate to see people get into something that's, they get the idea that it's going to be easy and then they fail and then they're hard on themselves and they might not want to do it again. So Right, and
1: if they're not confident to build their own tank because they think they're going to fail and then they buy something that they think you know, some, you know, professional or or some experienced person buys and and they fail at that because they were set up to fail because the plants weren't right to begin with. Yeah. It just compounds the, the lack of confidence. And that's not right. That's not what you want.
0: Yeah. I mean, plus the other thing is, I think a lot of people don't really consider the fact that you're not going to hit a home run right out of the park the first time around. You know what I mean? It's going to be a learning curve. I mean, I have old vivariums that have been up for like almost 10 years now that i look at them and i cringe and i keep telling myself if i could have done this differently i would have but the plants still do very well the frogs do well they're still up there but i know that i had to cross that bridge first before i could get to the more advanced builds that i'm happier with so i just feel like people worry you know, sometimes you worry too much i mean even the vivarium itself it's going to be a living thing it's going to move you know plants are going to grow they're going to die they're going to Some are going to bloom and take over. Sometimes you're going to cut stuff back. I have, I mean, I just, I posted on Instagram a while back. I had been doing some pruning in one of my vivariums and I had a leaf pop up from a plant that I thought I had pulled out of there a year ago. So it was a little pleasant surprise, but I think people need to consider that when they start doing builds is that it's, it's going to get a little out of control sometimes, but I guess that's, that's the fun in it, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, nothing is stable. You, you know, when you get a, a, an enclosure to where you want it to look, take a picture of it because it's not going to look like that ever again. It's, you know, just simply because you're either going to grow thicker or you're going to grow thicker and then you're going to trim it and you're going to, you know, you're constantly. But there's going to be a point where if the plants are going to get exactly how you envisioned it but that's going to last for two weeks. And then you better change your vision because everything's going to change as, you know, it's a dynamic system. Everything over time changes. And if you've had an enclosure up for long enough, you may not actually get to the point of ever tearing it down, but it's going to evolve. It's going to be changed. I've had some where the wood just gets so rotten that the whole thing just collapses and you have to put in whole new pieces of wood and you either have to, you know, pick the plants off of the old wood or just set new pieces of wood on top of the, you know, what's left of the, the old wood and just let the plants keep growing. But nothing is inert in the, in the tank unless you use inert substrate. But the, the, above the substrate level. Nothing is inert and really nothing can be inert. And so it's going to constantly evolve and you just, you and your vision and, and how you care for it has to evolve with it.
0: That's a good word. I like that evolve. Cause we all go through that early developmental series and we just kind of uh, progress as we go along, I guess.
1: Right. And, and your design and your eye will evolve. I mean, like you said, the first tank that I did was a, a 10 gallon. I I bought one of those old conversion kits and my background was, I didn't use cocoa core. I use the, the fiber stuff, you know, the stuff that people use to line like hanging baskets and stuff. They sell that in bulk. And I, I glued down cocoa fiber. And then I had in there this, variegated Neo Zoe bromeliad, a single piece of driftwood. And I think some Hartley philodendron. And that was the end of it. And like you said, I, there are so many things about that, that tank that I would look at now and and cringe, but yeah, you know, this is year uh, 11 plus for me and my eye for things and, and scale and, You know, I'm able to work with bigger enclosures now, and I have a whole, you know, a vastly bigger array of plants that I know now. And, you know, everything evolves as you learn. But if you don't take that first step, you're never going to get to the point where you're able to learn because you have to jump in and do it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for all you beginners out there, look, don't don't be intimidated. No no one's perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to learn, th- but you're going to learn things along the way. And that's the, that's for me, that was always the fun in it is it just, it just, it's a living thing. It continuously grows. Every tank is its own, I don't want to say ecosystem per se, but like it's, it's, it's its own little entity and it's fun. Right. It's, it's honestly, I'll go into a tank and just prune back everything just because I, I want to see how it looks in six months. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'll go in there and I'll clear it out. And then I'll get new growth here. I'll get new growth there. I mean, again, I'm not keeping anything that that's that crazy. I mean, I'm basically talking about, like, Ficus Pamilia and, um, um, like, some Monstera. So, it's, it's nothing that crazy. But it's fun. It's fun to watch it develop in different directions and, you know, you prune it back, kind of start over, change some leaf litter and... and you get some new things to develop, which is a lot of fun to see. Right.
1: right. Yeah. Don't be afraid to make mistakes and don't be afraid to kill a plant because you will. I mean, you don't, my mentor has always said, you don't learn anything from successfully growing a plant because you can luck into being successful. You learn far more from killing it because that's something you can say, oh, well, I can't do that again. And it's going to happen. I mean, I, there's, I, doubt there's anybody who can say they've never killed any plant they've tried. And I'd be willing to bet that they're lying to you if they said that.
0: Yeah. Plus it makes you want it more, you know what I mean? Makes you, makes you want to try harder next time. Right. Yeah. Well, look, Zach, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and and go over all these little scenarios with us. And I hope it helped everybody out there too. I know these are a lot of questions that I, I see all the time and, it was uh, it was real great getting Zach's experience and getting some of his uh, his input on this. But um, Zach, if everyone wanted to just check you out online and um, you know your operation, how can they find you?
1: I'm probably most active on Instagram at Equatorial E Q U A T O R I A L underscore Ecosystems. Uh, I also have a website that I'm finally getting around to updating. I posted some plants last night uh, and I'll have more up by the time people hear this. Uh, It's equatorial-ecosystems.com. I'm also on Facebook, um, but most of the activity on Facebook is just because I've got it set that whatever gets posted on Instagram goes to Facebook. So yeah, if you need to get in touch with me, do it on Instagram I've got a link tree set up in, in that bio that takes you to a number of other things. Um, but yeah, that, that's my, my primary social media.
0: Link tree is like the best thing in the world, isn't it? Oh, I know. <laughs> I love it's... it. I love it. Cause I mean, a while back I was posting like four or five different links in the show description and on Instagram. Now it's just, I've, I've become like the unofficial spokesperson for link tree for like the amphibian industry because it just makes it so simple
1: yeah it's great you push one link and then all the buttons pop up and you just click whatever button you want to go to yeah and I'm, I'm hopefully i'm working on um on my website it has a blog function and i will start to post different write-ups on just how to do certain things i i wrote up something about substrate a while back so i have a post up about substrate i've also got a fruit fly culture how to up uh, or beginners. And then that's probably also I post animals when I have them available on morph market and fauna, but I will probably post, make a blog post saying, Hey, you know, I've got some of Faga ready, you know, send me an email. I, I think that's more personal than, uh, you know, po- putting a, a for sale link on the website and somebody can just click add to cart and buy some frogs. I would rather, put it up there and then have somebody send me an email and we talk back and forth to make sure care is spot on and stuff before, you know, we, we, I ship anything out.
0: Yeah. That's always important. You know, the human element is one of the most underlooked things, especially in an industry like this is, you know, just taking a few minutes to talk to somebody goes a long way.
1: Right. Yeah. Cause we want, I mean, new people, experienced people, whoever to be successful and I'm happy to pass on, whatever knowledge I have to whoever needs to hear it
0: yeah well you know Zach thanks for coming on tonight it's been a lot of fun and um you know for everyone out there like I said don't don't get discouraged if you make mistakes these are all common mistakes that people make and I hope that our discussion tonight was able to help you if you've had some of these and you know look sometimes we get embarrassed we don't want to admit that we might be having trouble so Hey, look, there's no shame in admitting that you have a problem sometimes, and there's no shame in asking for help. So for all you guys out there, I hope you found this episode interesting. I always learned a lot. I did too. And other than that, catch up with you guys again soon.